0: Good morning. It's great to be back. Um, for those of you who don't know us, uh, Amy and I worshipped at Two Rivers for about a year, I think, in 2012 and thirteen, maybe, before our daughter was born. So it is, it is great to be back. And we go even further back than that with, with many of you here. Um, and I also do want to say, very quickly, that uh, our church... And two rivers are kindred spirits. Um, We know something about your transition. Uh, Our church downtown, the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul on Cumming Street is an Anglican church. Um, We know about some of your transition. And our rector, Pete Dickinson, has specifically, by name, prayed for two rivers out loud in our vestry meetings. So you've been prayed for. Um, And now we would also then covet your prayers as we're in our own transition. We now need you to pray for us. So um, you might not know it, but we are, we're kindred spirits and it's great to worship together this morning. So as we read, we are this morning in uh, Revelation 11. We're going to be in Revelation 11 this week and Revelation 12 next week. So you have some homework this week. You need to meditate on Revelation 12 uh, after we work through chapter 11 this morning. And before I really get into the chapter, we need to probably get on the same page about our approach to Revelation, right? Before, uh, many people have many different ways of interpreting the book. So let me just go through my approach so that you're not um, thrown for a loop as we go through it. My approach, and this is probably not new to many of you, this is probably not anything crazy, but my approach is not literal and it's not chronological. The book of Revelation is not literal and it's not chronological. Um, And that's probably not anything new. Literalism in the book is not all that popular anymore um, in most Christian circles. Anyway, Uh, secondly, Revelation is an Old Testament book. In order to understand what we're going to read this morning, you have to know the ministries of Moses and Elijah. You have to know the prophecies of Zechariah and Ezekiel. You have to know the book of Daniel. All that John is doing throughout his version of the apocalypse that he's been given from God is he is repackaging all of the Old Testament promises of the Messiah and he is expanding them and he is making them fuller and bigger and imminent. That's all they are. It's the Old Testament repackaged and updated that he has given us. So one, it's not literal, it's not chronological. Two, it is completely rooted in the Old Testament. And then three, just so that we're on the same page, my reading of Revelation has become like watching a movie with my daughter, Marilee. Uh, I don't know if you've seen many kids' movies recently, um, especially the old ones. Anyone watched any of the old Disney movies? They are terrifying. I watched Pinocchio this week, and it, was, it, it freaked me out. And at some points, a lot of times, we have to turn off those old movies because the villains in the old Disney movies are really villainous. And I can't remember what movie it was. Um, It doesn't really matter. What happened was just so cute that I don't even remember the movie. I just love what had happened. We were watching a movie together. Marilee was all excited. Kids' movies are great because they're animated. And she's like, oh, this is for me. It's a movie for me. Let's watch it together, Dad. And everything's great. And then the villain comes into the picture. And then it's a little bit disturbing, dark and terrifying. And in one particular movie, she didn't say a thing, she just kind of sighed, and she rolled off my lap onto the couch, and she burrowed behind me and moved me, and she lifted up my arm, and then she watched the movie for about 10 minutes behind me under my arm. And I can't remember what it was. It was so cute. That's all I remember. I've even tried to remanufacture that moment. Um, It never works. Um, But it was adorable, and I was so grateful that she felt safe behind me, that she could watch the movie right there while the villain was was doing his thing. That's how I've been reading Revelation lately. Not because I'm afraid of the villain like she was. I'm back there hiding out because, and I don't like to admit this, but because I love the villain. Or maybe I should say, if I'm going to be more accurate... I love what the villain loves And so do you I love the things that the villain loves And I go after the things that the villain goes after More than I want to admit I'm hiding back there Behind Jesus from God the Father I'm not hiding from Satan Satan Revelation will make a terrible movie Satan's defeated before it even begins It's anticlimactic And there's no power that can stand up To God the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit I'm back there freaked out by my alignment with the enemy more often than I want to admit. And that'll become clearer as we get through this chapter. Now, as we read, the chapter begins with an uh, an instruction to John to measure the church. Uh, The reading this morning was temple. That temple is literally the church. He's told to measure most of it and take a census of the people that worship there how big it is, how many people are worshiping there, Um, but what would be the necessity of measuring the temple for God? Why take a census? God already knows. John is to record its size and its layout and the people there because it's going to need to be preserved and rebuilt. It's being attacked, and you see that in the chapter. In verse 2, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. It is being attacked and it will need to be restored and rebuilt. Uh, So John is told to leave out part of it. God's enemies would, if they could, go inside the temple and even attack the people in it and desecrate inside it. But they're held at bay uh, in some measure by God's sovereignty. So but the persecution has actually reached inside the temple. Even though the outer court is being trampled, part of their persecution has moved into the temple, and we know this because of the Greek language that John uses. John puts a proximity to the altar inside the temple and the worshipers there as if to say the people that were sacrificed on the altar are the people of the church. There's a proximity there that connects them. This is repeated throughout John's apocalypse. You can read the opening of the fifth seal in chapter 6. Or next week, read chapter 12, verse 11. People are being martyred. The persecution is held in check for the most part, while the court outside is overrun, but some have been sacrificed on the altar inside the temple. But the good news is it's being measured, and it will be preserved, and it will be restored later. So even though the persecution is intense and incessant, and it does seem to reach into the temple, it's held in check. But even more importantly, it's temporary. The persecution that's going on outside the building will not go on and on forever. And we know that it's only temporary because it only lasts for 42 months. So any math nerds in here, when I say 42 months, some of you automatically know how long that is. Mallory, go. Sorry, that was totally, that was awful to put you on the spot. 42 months, three and a half years. Three and a half is not really the important number, the lengths of time. So remember, I'm not literal and I'm not chronological in my approach to Revelation. 42 months is not a literal amount of time. 42 months is a figurative number that is symbolically telling you that the persecution won't last forever. If it was going to last forever, it wouldn't be 42 months. It would be 84 months, which is seven years. Seven is a very important number in the revelation and all throughout scripture seven signifies perfection completion or wholeness you see this throughout this chapter Uh, in just a second the next verse 1260 days that's 42 months it's three and a half years next week you'll read it as time times and half a time it's the same thing time times and half a time three and a half ages three and a half epochs doesn't matter how long it is it's not literal three and a half is not the important number seven is the important number seven is completion now we know this because of other scriptures we know this because of the full weight of scripture and all of the places that seven is used and the way it's used seven means perfection we don't really know why i'll give you an explanation it's not in the Bible. This goes back to church tradition. I think the second century is the earliest mention of it. Seven is the number of perfection or completion uh, simply because the three persons of the Trinity work throughout the four corners of the world and that work will be perfect. You put them together and it's over. It's complete. Now, that's not a biblical explanation. It might not be right, but it's plausible. And it's so simple that you can remember it. And now as you read through Scripture, whenever you see seven... It's a a helpful explanation. The three persons of the Trinity will not fail in their work throughout the four corners of the world. It will be over and it will be complete. And that is also helpful in in trying to explain why 12 is the number of the church. The 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes, 12 disciples, the three persons of the Trinity have chosen to multiply their work through the four corners of the world through you. That work is multiplied by you going out and acting like Christ for your communities. So, uh, all throughout the Revelation, all throughout Scripture, when you see multiples of twelve, you know it's a representation of the Church. When you see seven, uh, it's getting at whatever has happened seven times, then it's over. It's perfect. It's complete. And we'll see that. We'll see that here in just a little bit. So. John is encouraging us that this persecution is temporary, first of all, but the use of 42 months is also a connection to Israel and the church's history. It is not isolated or disconnected or random or unplanned. He uses 42 to call you back to a number of events in the church's past. 42 months, length of Christ's ministry. It's also the number of encampments of Israel in the wilderness, Read Numbers 33 and count them. It's also the length of Elijah's ministry of judgment when he shuts the sky and brings down a drought. John is recalling for us all these ancient hardships and trials with which we should resonate at the same time reminding us that those ancient hardships for God's people are just temporary. They're not going to last. It will end. It will be over. And then into the fray of this persecution walk these two figures, the two witnesses. Before we're told exactly what their authority is, we're told that they will prophesy for three and a half years, also temporary, they're not going to have to preach forever, and they're also in mourning. They're wearing sackcloth. They're not comfortable. This isn't in an air-conditioned air building with coffee and donuts. They're going out, and what they're preaching is disturbing, it's bothersome, and people hate it. And people lash out and try to attack. Specifically they're mourning, what would be the result of their preaching? It's going to result in uh, not massive conversions. This is not going to be a third great awakening. They're going to be eventually killed. And yet their preaching is no less powerful and no less effective, even though that's going to be the outcome. Now, there's little debate among scholars that these two witnesses are modeled after Moses and Elijah, and you can see it right in the reading. Uh, Like Elijah, they consume their enemies with fire. They shut up the sky into drought. Like Moses, they turn waters into blood, and they call forth waves of plagues. And Moses and Elijah are also the two Old Testament witnesses that get to hang out in the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9. But on an even more practical note, these two are us. They're the church. They are disciples being sent out by Christ in pairs in the Gospels. They're the Old Testament requirement in Deuteronomy 19 of a double witness in order to bring about a lawful or a just verdict on a criminal. And if that's not enough, in verse 4, John calls them the olive trees and the lampstands. Go back and read Revelation 1 and you'll get an explanation as to what the lampstands are. They're the churches. And they're being sustained and fueled by Christ who's standing in the middle of the seven lampstands. Go back to Zechariah. Read Zechariah chapter 4 and you'll see that the olive trees are producers of the oil that bring the light in the lamps on the lampstands. They are the church. These two witnesses are you. And you have power. Even if you're not turning our two great rivers into blood, and even if you're not calling down a drought upon the, the ever-damp low country, your preaching has power. You are to go out in power and confidence and tell your neighbors about the Messiah. Although we don't really b- believe it, do we? We don't preach like we really have confidence. But what if we did? What if we went out and actually told our neighbors about the Messiah as if we were unstoppable like these two? They can't kill us until they kill us. They can't kill us until our testimony is over. You have complete power until you have preached God's word. And these two witnesses, they don't back down from telling the truth. They prophesy boldly and readily. Is that you, Two Rivers? Are you willing to do that? I hope so. Some, I, If I were to ask that to my church, it'd, it'd be a mixed answer. Maybe it is here too. Maybe we don't tell the truth about the Messiah because we're timid. Maybe we don't always believe it. Maybe we are aligning ourselves with the villain more than the Messiah. We should be willing to go and shout About the Messiah, if we read Revelation and really believe it. Read chapter one, and you see a powerful warrior who cannot be moved standing in the middle of the churches. There is no way that you could be stopped if you're his representative. If they are the olive trees and the lampstands, act like you got the Holy Spirit. Everybody, does it work? Nice. If you are the olive trees and the lampstands, you have nothing to fear. You have the power of the one who gives you power. These two witnesses don't exhibit their own power. They exhibit the Messiah's power. They don't testify to their own power. They testify to the Messiah's power. You're always testifying to something. You're always preaching something. What is it? And I hope we ask ourselves, what am I preaching more often than not? What is the power that I'm preaching? And to what power would you turn and preach if you're being persecuted? You absolutely cannot be killed until you're killed. So don't be afraid. Don't be timid. I know we all capitulate and I know we all backpedal and I know we like to tickle the world's ears and be tickled by the world and I know that we like to get along to go along. It's so much easier when the world likes you. But what kind of power would we really unleash if we really witnessed with the unvarnished truth about ourselves and the Messiah the way these two here are in chapter 11? Now, let's not kid ourselves about thinking that it's going to be easy. If it were easy, you could rely on your own power. You wouldn't need a Messiah to hold you back so that you could peer out from under his arm. If it were easy, you could just go out and you could do it. In fact, in verse 7, as soon as the witnesses finish testifying about the power of the judge, they're conquered. As quickly as they were granted authority, it is taken from them and they are silenced by one of Satan's beasts, foretold in Daniel 7. You want to read about this beast? Go back to Daniel 7. And they're not just killed. Their unburied bodies are humiliated and reviled. Their deaths are celebrated. Their bodies are paraded through the streets. This is where I sometimes find myself on the wrong side, where I'm watching under the arms of the Messiah. I have felt like this about brothers and sisters in the American church especially when they shill for evil, selfish, stupid policies that are clearly an affront to the grace of Christ. We even heard some of them in the last few weeks, cherry-pick verses out of context to justify abhorrent policies that rip families apart. I found myself rejoicing over their humiliation, embarrassed that they're a part of the same institution that I am, that they're a part of this body. I heard Christians in the media defending being evil to people that God has specifically told you to go out and grab and bring into your home. That's unacceptable. But so is my longing for their downfall. So is my hatred of them. That's just as stupid. If the unmatched Messiah has the power to judge the unrighteous and face down the wrath of God the Father on behalf of the redeemed, while I hide back behind him, protected under his arm, who am I to revel over their humiliation or dance over their deaths? I am not allowed to hate the people that the Messiah has died for. And I do it too much. I can lament their choices. I can be a witness to the truth that the Messiah is the Lord of every tongue and every tribe and every people and every nation. I can remind leaders that the Messiah died for the world and not one country. But I cannot join in with what is being done to these witnesses, and I too often want to. Now, let's be clear and honest. We do have firepower in our preaching, in our prophesying, but that does not mean safety. It does not mean that you're going to be safe. It means that you have the truth about your sin and the power of the Messiah who lets you stand back there behind him as he takes the blows from God the Father on behalf of your sin. But that's where your safety ends. You are saved from God the Father's anger, but the Bible does not anywhere say that you're going to be safe. These witnesses are killed. They are killed ignominiously. The American church has somehow added safety into the Ten Commandments. They've kind of crowbarred it in there. As long as you're safe, turn the other cheek, but only once and only if the guy is smaller than you, right? That's not in there. You will not be safe, but you will be protected. You will not survive, but you will live forever. You will be killed, but you will resurrect. Now, these are not two specific people. They represent the church. So it would seem by this passage that there's a a very brief period, a very brief moment in which the church is silenced, in which the church is defeated. Some scholars actually think they will be wiped out at this point right before the end of the final judgment with the seventh trumpet being blown. The argument that makes the most sense to me from the most recent and best Revelation scholars, is that the church will be reduced to such a remnant through such severe persecution that their influence is basically universal silence. Even within the city of the Messiah in verse 8, you see that uh, the city has become so wicked that it's called Egypt and Sodom, two of the most decadent uh, entities in the Old Testament. Whichever the case, the enemies of God are so seemingly victorious that they hear no more prophecy. They experience no more true power for a time. And then we get verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. The party just got rolling and everything was just getting good and these two get up and they get their lives back. I love to kind of picture this. You can imagine them getting up and looking around. They look at each other and then they just look at everybody who's standing there, jaws dropped, all the wine glasses hit the floor. Everybody's freaking out. They're looking a little too long at that one guy's wedding himself. They're really uncomfortable. And then they get a wonderful, glorious, simple, get up here, come see me, come home. After the church gets hit and gets hit hard to the point of being silenced, the church gets up and goes directly to the Father. And once it does, once the church is out of harm's way, once the two witnesses... Ascend to heaven, we get the end. We get verse 15. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. Seven means it's over. Seven means it's complete. That's the end of the world. It's the second coming of Christ, if you will. Six trumpets were already blown. They were blown back in chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 10 and 11, we get this little interlude about the church and its distribution of God's word. It's preaching as... The, uh, as uh, both John deals with God's word and then the two witnesses deal with God's word here in chapter 11 and this happens repeatedly in John's version of the apocalypse you get six waves of six waves of judgment being thrown down onto the earth and then they take a little break God takes the church moves it out of the way tells everybody to sit tight stand here be safe watch this and then the seventh wave of judgment, and it's over. And this happens a few different times. Chapter 6, here, chapter 19. Six waves of judgment, church has moved out of the way, and then the end. And in verse 15, that's what we're given. A beautiful picture of the consummation of history. The church has preached, the church has warned, the church has been persecuted, and killed, and raised to life, And moved out of the way, and then the seventh angel blows his trumpet. He declares that the kingdom of the world has become once again what it was meant to be, the kingdom of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Twenty-four elders who also represent the church get down off their thrones, get on their face, and they worship. And then an earthquake splitting open the temple that was being trampled to reveal directly inside the Ark of the Covenant. And hopefully that sounds familiar, right? Matthew 27, verse 51. You You've got an earthquake ripping open the temple right at the death of Christ. And the, uh, the, the curtain that separates the inner sanctum from the rest of the temple is torn in two. So now you can look directly into the place where God the Father dwells with his people. And here, you see the Ark of the Covenant where God directly sat on the mercy seat dwelling with Israel. It's open. You have direct access to the Father. Come to me. Come out from under the Messiah's arm. You don't have to hide back there. In fact, you can't hide back there. Get out there and go be the witness. You have to go witness. You have you. Have every need to prophesy. You don't have any need to hide. You have power. Your neighbors have every need of you prophesying. They need to hear about the Messiah. You will not be safe, but neither are they. Go get them and bring them in and tell them they have direct access to the Father who prepared a way for them to go into the temple. Are you a witness? to the temple tearing open and giving those who were lost like we were, giving those who hate like we did, like I do, direct access to the power. We're going to close with the prayer of the elders in verses 17 and 18. I'm going to amend it just a little bit because the seventh trumpet has not yet blown. The seventh trumpet, uh, the, the final judgment, final wave of the judgment has not been thrown down. And we are still prophesying. We have not yet been killed. So I'm going to amend it just a little bit, but this is, this is our closing prayer. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath will come. And the time for the dead to be judged will come. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, their time will come. And the time will come for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Even so, amen.